Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. So today we're going to be talking about the Hotel del Coronado. And originally, we were going to talk about some more haunted hotels. And then we fell down a very deep rabbit hole on this one. And we're like, it's just this. It's just this one tonight or today or whenever you are listening to this. Yeah, it simply has to be. Yeah. So it's located in San Diego. And I'm going to go into a little bit of history because it just makes it more interesting, I'd say, because it definitely has a rich history. So the Hotel Del Coronado was built in 1888 by Alicia Babcock Jr. and Hampton L. Story. And they wanted to build a magnificent hotel that would be, quote, the talk of the Western world, where people would continue to come long after we are gone. And I will say that they did it. It was built for 600000 and it was furnished for 400000 That's a lot in 1888. Yeah. It featured more than 400 guest rooms with beautiful furniture, and it also had private bathrooms, and that was a luxury at the time. And it had approximately 71 bathrooms, and those are rooms with bathtubs, and 71 what they call water closets, which meant toilets. When we were researching hotels generally, I didn't realize what a hotel like this meant to the city. That like when you had a hotel to this kind of scale and this level, it kind of symbolized that this city had arrived. Right. There were a big deal. So it's akin to if there was a major like sports team that was in that city. That's how intense the bragging rights were. Yeah, pretty much. So sometime during the construction, an economic downturn occurred and it sent many of the investors away. So, of course, the founders were super nervous. But John D. Spreckles, which love it. I thought we would. Yeah, we would both love his name. Spreckles. Spreckles fell in love with the place and he provided a lot of financial assistance to help get this place built. The founders ended up transferring ownership to Spreckles and he remained the owner until his death in 1926. And then on top of that, the hotel actually remained in his family until 1948. Wow. So not surprisingly, once we kind of get into this, it was considered a technological marvel. Electricity at that time was still thought to be a novelty. So the hotel was thought to be one of the largest buildings in the United States that was, quote unquote, electrified. And also, it not only supplied electricity, obviously, to the building itself, but also to the entire city of Coronado. It had steam-powered hydraulic elevators, telephone service, and at that point, telephone service had only gotten to San Diego about seven years before then. It also had an array of of famous visitors, including President Benjamin Harrison. He was also the first in-office United States president to visit San Diego. Interesting. Right. He later said to future President William Taft, who also at one point visited, one who has ever breathed this atmosphere would want to live here always. What a review. (laughs) Right? It's so nice. I actually love the area. We went during the summer, actually, to San Diego. And, you know, from our Whaley House episode, I talked about being there. But we also went here. I didn't get to go into the hotel, but we hung out on one of the beaches right by the hotel. And I was obsessed with the area. I'd never been before. But every house in the area, like down Ocean Avenue, is different and unique, but in like a really cool way. So like as we were driving, trying to find parking, I'm like, I love that house. I love that house. I want to live in that house. All of them were gorgeous. I just need you to know that you said Ocean Avenue and I said yellow card. I know. I know. Like, yeah, just. Yeah, it happened in my head, too, as I was talking about the houses. Yeah, I was like, oh, how are you keeping track of what you're saying? Because I'm just playing yellow card in my head. It happens. It happens. It has to happen. Yeah. All right. So another sort of famous person that has been there was a little girl named Noelle. 
And at the time, I don't think she was so famous, but I think what transpired because she was there is now. Anyway, she was a little girl that stayed in 1892, and she wrote a series of letters to her cousins back east while she spent the season from like January to April at the hotel. Her letters included watercolor pictures that were painted by the family's quote unquote nurse. And when I was like, they're a nurse, it sounds more like a tutor. Like she gave the kids instruction and taught them things and kind of watched them. So like a nanny tutor. But she included the pictures that the nurse had painted, as well as descriptions of what she saw at the hotel. And now I've seen these all over the place. When you look up the hotel, it's like, and Noel did this. One of the descriptions, though, I thought was cute. It's the way that she described the hotel, quote, this is the loveliest, biggest hotel you can imagine. It has ever and ever so many funny little windows and balconies like the big dovecote at grandma's. The hotel is white and it has red roofs everywhere. The red and white between the bluest sky and the bluest water is like a beautiful dream in a fairy story. Well, they should have just closed on after that because they peaked. They peaked. They peaked. (laughs) It is still super pretty. The whole area is just gorgeous. So another famous person is author L. Frank Baum. And if you know that name, it's because of The Wizard of Oz. He had stayed there many times between 1904 and 1910, and he would usually stay months at a time when he visited. During these years, I want to note, he did write three books in the Oz series, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, The Road to Oz, and The Emerald City. He also wrote a poem about the hotel. Hmm. So it made an imprint on him. During the early 1900s, filmmakers also began using the hotel as a set. And one of the most popular early films was The Pearls of Paradise, starring Margarita Fisher. I went on IMDb, too, because I was like, what other films? And there's so many. There's films, there's TV shows. I saw things like Baywatch even at one point. So many. A few other famous visitors include Charlie Chaplin, Charles Lindbergh, Franklin Roosevelt, Marilyn Monroe. Something interesting about her, they filmed Some Like It Hot there. Oh. Mm -hmm. A couple other presidents, too. President Richard Nixon, President Jimmy Carter, and Gerald Ford. That's quite the list. And then on top of all of that, it became a national landmark in 1977. Hmm. So as interesting as the history is, you know what we want to talk about? Ghosts. We want to talk about more ghosts. Ghosts. Okay, so when we talk about ghosts, we're really talking about ghost correct? It seems like... Sort of. For the most part, there's one major ghost. There, are, there could be other ones, but the one that people actually see is her, right? And the other things that I just experience things in rooms. Yeah, the most talked about ghost is of a woman. She's been seen by many people. We're going to refer to her now as the woman, but we'll talk about who she could be after. Many guests and hotel employees have seen or felt her presence. She's usually seen wearing clothes from the 1800s and she's, quote, gliding down corridors, entering a room, or standing by a window as if she's waiting for someone. Hmm. The woman originally stayed in a third floor guest room, room 302, which is now room 3327. This, of course, is the most requested room. So here are some of the things that people who stay there report. Flickering lights, the TV turning on and off, unexplained breezes, scents and sounds, items moving on their own, doors opening and closing, room temperatures changing quickly, and they hear footsteps and sometimes even voices. So I think it's safe to say that if you're in room 3327, you're not going to have a restful night's sleep. No, you don't go there to sleep. Like there's going to be, yeah, there's things happening. And then so other people sometimes also talk about feeling watched. That creeps me out. Some people have said like, you know, the TV is off. They look at the screen and they can see her face. When I read about that, I had chills because that is like a big fear of mine. When I, especially when I'm staying somewhere that I'm like, okay, I know it's haunted. I've heard some stories. And then anything that has a reflection, I can't. Like the TV is on at all moments. <laughs> the <laughs> If I have to go wash my face in the bathroom, I need someone to go with me because when I open my eyes, someone's going to be standing behind me. So even if it's like a, there's a light on, you're like, no, someone is going to be there. No, I know. Can you imagine though when you're like, oh, I'm going to stay in the most haunted hotel ever or haunted place. You're washing your face and then when you anything out of the corner of your eye, look up, you're like, yep, someone's behind me. They are definitely behind me. I need someone to keep watch. Okay. But I feel like if I was purposely going to a very haunted place, I would want haunted experiences. I do, but I want to be ready for it. 
like I'm vulnerable when I'm washing my face. Okay. Okay. That is the only one I will take where you're not ready for it because otherwise, yeah, you've chosen this particular place to stay at. So one could say upon entering, you were showing that you were ready <laughs> for ghosts. Yeah. But like when you have soap in your eyes, you can't be ready for the ghost. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't want to be like taking off my mascara and then Exactly. Yes. Some woman's like, Hello Solve my murder. Yeah. But any other time I'm like ready. Like I've stayed at the Hotel San Carlos many times. I'm fine with it. I can sleep. It's fine. Yeah. But just at that moment, no ghosties. Like I need like a sign. Please give me five minutes. Yeah. I am open and willing and receptive, just not in the bathroom. Right? I think that's fair. Yeah. Shower too. Yeah. I don't want to be, oh my God, in the shower especially. I don't know why, but I have this fear that... (laughs) (laughs) Amanda's like, I never know what's going to come out of her fucking mouth. I have this fear of being in the shower and there being a bug on me and me not knowing... Like, because, like, it's, I think it's, like, water or hair or something like that. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in the shower and I've jumped, screamed, and almost died because my own hair on my own shoulder has startled me. (laughs) I was going to say, how many medicine cabinets have you broken by jumping out of the shower? Just one. Just one. So much bad luck. Anywho, surprise, surprise, there have been many a paranormal group that have visited and done investigations. Also, some people have said they've seen her in the hallways and even on the seashore. That last one I find particularly sad. So on their website, they have a live beach cam and you can check it out and you can look for her yourself. Right. I I did log into their beach cam. Love it. And when I was first researching, I was like, oh, it's midnight. Hell yeah, I'm going to go look for her. I couldn't get it to work. But during the day, I got it to work. That's fair. Daytime ghosts only. Yeah, I couldn't get it, but maybe it was just my browser. I don't know. But it is kind of cool because they have two cameras for each like side of the beach. And you could be like, oh, look at there she is. Yeah. I don't think that's its purpose, but that's the purpose that I found for their cam. That feels fair to me. She's also been spotted at the gift shop, which I love. She's got to get some trinkets, some tchotchkes. <laughs> Many employees and visitors have seen items fly off the shelves, but usually they'll fall upright. And they won't break. Mm -hmm. And then another hot spot of activity is a room on the fifth floor, which is now 3519. And it's smaller than the woman's room. And it's thought to be the room of the maid who assisted the woman during her stay. And there are reports that after the woman who died's funeral had taken place, the maid was never seen again. Ooh. Right? And I'm like, that's an interesting thing because you're like, why? What does the maid have to do with anything realistically? Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of interesting things about this and a lot of questions. Exactly. Yeah. Because once we go into a little bit more of there is a mystery afoot. Yeah. There is, in fact, a mystery afoot. (laughs) So perhaps the maid had something to do with it. I don't know. So there was also a Secret Service agent that stayed in the room in 1983. And he was so spooked that he requested another room in the middle of the night, Hmm. which you would think for a Secret Service agent, they'd be like, yeah, pretty brave, right? And so for those that are not in the U.S., a Secret Service agent, they are basically a federal law enforcement agency under the Department of Homeland Security, and they guard politicians, most notably the president. So I know Lindsay mentioned that there was a bunch of paranormal groups that have stayed here. In one particular instance, one was staying in the room, and while sitting in the room together around 3 a.m., a glass of water in the empty bathroom smashed onto the floor all by itself. In the goddamn bathroom, we had one rule. No bathrooms. (laughs) And so I said at 3 a.m. or around 3 a.m. is when the glass of water fell. Interestingly, a lot of paranormal activity seems to happen around 3 a.m., It comes up a lot, and we actually discussed it in our ghost episode from a while back, but it's also called the witching hour, and everyone's probably heard of the witching hour, right? I feel like it's like a a term everyone knows. Yeah. Well, just a quick recap, and like I said, we've gone over it before, but it was first recorded in 1835, and the origin seems to be from a period of time in 1535, where the Catholic Church forbade activities during the 3 to 4 o'clock a.m. window due to rising concerns about witchcraft in Europe. 
So witch hunts, demonic activity, exorcisms, and rituals had all become intertwined with the witching hour. And if you look at it in like any horror movie, that's what the clock is on. 3.33. Like when something, yeah, when something's going to happen. There is a pretty big debate on like, what is it actually? And some people are like, yep, it's the witching hour. It means that the veil between life and death is at its thinnest. And this allows spirits and ghosts to travel between the two worlds. Others believe that witches and psychics are more powerful at this time of night, probably because of that thinning veil. So it's like the Halloween of a day. It is. Yeah, it's the Halloween of your night or I guess your morning. Some aren't really sure, but a lot of people are like, well, nothing good's going to happen around 3 a.m. So just like don't mess with it. The number three is also a mockery of the Holy Trinity, which makes it the perfect time for evil acts to occur. And then realistically, I don't know, it makes sense for a lot of people, though, that don't really believe in the witching hour. 3 a.m. is typically when your body goes through REM and it's the deepest sleep possible. Things happen to your body. Your heart rate slows down, your temperature drops, and generally a lot of like your functions are dulled at that time. So you can get that deep rest. Okay. So if you suddenly wake in the middle of your REM phase, you typically feel weird because it like interrupted your deepest sleep. So normally you wake up, you feel weird, and then that's when you're like, your mind could be playing tricks on you or things could be happening that aren't really happening. But again, I don't know. It could go either way. It could also be ghosts. It could be ghosts. It could be ghosts because of the thin veil. So something that I had never heard of before, but there was like the biggest paranormal investigation that took place in 1992. And the hotel contracted with someone named Christopher Chacon, and he was a parapsychologist, anomalist. He was asked to conduct a confidential assessment of the reports and paranormal activities throughout the resort. Now, here's why I'm like, this is crazy. The investigation was a continuous 24-hour-a-day, 12-month investigation. Can you imagine? Imagine getting paid to watch those videos. What do you do for a living? Well, currently, I am doing a year-long ghost hunt. I would imagine that part of it was, like, for the thrill of the hunt. Sign me up. Because, like, I doubt the hotel was like, we've got a cool, like, 50K to blow on this. Maybe. I mean, it is, like, the place to visit. All these wealthy people have visited, right? So they used a lot of technology to monitor and scan the property. All aspects were analyzed, including things like temperature, electrostatic emissions, air current, air content, electromagnetic and geomagnetic spectrums, all types of radiation, vibrations and movement, air pressure, humidity, and even spectrums of light. So pretty much anything you could monitor was monitored. On top of that, 1,100 people were interviewed, including guests, people that just visited for the day, employees, workers, contractors, anyone they could get their hands on was interviewed. Half of the people interviewed reported unexplainable events. Hmm. That's a decent amount of people. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty high average. Mm-hmm. Also, this is only tangentially related, but I would like to see a VICAP for ghosts. Lindsay, let's do it. I know. We invent apps all the time on this, but we don't have the technological savvy to be able to do it ourselves. I feel like so often you hear different experiences of ghosts. If you were able to like say like these seven things happen in 80% of hauntings, wouldn't that be an interesting scientific one? Quote unquote scientific breakthrough. Anyway, I'm sorry. That's where my brain went. I would download that app. Yeah, I would download that app. I would also say like you would have to be a person who has like X amount of years in paranormal research or something like that in order to get on it so that you didn't have 15 year old boys being like, oh, she drew a dick on my mundo. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want any of that. A uh, paranormal scientist, if you will. Yeah, I mean, they would have to be a paranormal scientist. What do we have to do to get into that? That could be the type of scientists we are. Remember that doctorate? <laughs> Oh, yeah, there was that doctorate. Yeah. So to go back to our investigation, after almost 10,000 hours of continuous on-site assessment, they were able to document a significant percentage of paranormal phenomena that could not be explained scientifically. Things that were included in this were moving chairs and furniture, disembodied shadows, opening and closing of doors and windows, faucets turning on and off concentrations of extremely cold air. So, you know, 
when people are like, it just got really cold in here. They were monitoring that. Also disembodied voices and or footsteps. Creepy. Yes. Okay. Also, uh, secondary app. It's a, I suddenly can't remember any security firm company, but it's that, but it's for ghosts. It's like, we've detected all of your cabinets opening in the kitchen. We've detected (laughs) seven cold spots in your house. Perfect. Sign me up. You know what we need to do is we need to partner with home security networks that are already there and add these monitors where they pay an extra $9.99 a month for ghost monitoring. I mean, I think we could do more than $9.99 a month because in my brain, it is it's just more inclusive than that because it would have to pick up more subtle nuances than I don't know why I said nuances like that. Like, look, that was a fancy way to say it. Just saying it wrong. But I think that people would generally like that. What if you didn't notice? Yeah, we need to give the people what they want. Yeah, We need to give the people what they want. Could you imagine like you're living your life and you're just a gal on the go. You're single. You have a security system and you're like, you know what? Let me just add on ghost protection for $14.99 a month. And you've been so busy living your life. Didn't even know your house was haunted. Yes. So we will get on that. That'll be our, what, 900 thing that we've invented this week. Yeah. Seems doable. But we're not making visual art this week. So that feels like, yeah, we're, we're really focused. on. We're very focused. Yes. So from the interview, so these are things that happened that they couldn't so much document other than like what people told them. But there are hundreds of incidents where people described weird happenings like hearing or smelling something that couldn't be explained. Don't like that. It's just interesting that there's so many people saying almost the same thing. You know, I don't like a phantom smell. You know, that makes me upset. And if you don't know why, that means you haven't <laughs> listened to Black Forest. You need to go back because God knows we're going to reference it on every other episode. But like, <laughs> we need to have like prerequisites to listen because we will reference these like four episodes every episode. Yeah, we don't want you to feel left out. So this way you feel like you're inside on the joke, on the knowledge, on the know. Anyway, so we talked about the ghost before and we described her as the woman. The woman. The woman. But so the person who most people believe is the most active ghost of the woman that's around has this story. So she arrived alone on Thanksgiving Day of 1892, and the particular date was November 24th. When she came, she only had a small traveling bag with her, which for that time period was very bizarre. Yeah. She told hotel employees she was waiting for a gentleman to join her, and she checked in under the name Lottie Bernard. Spoiler alert. That was not her name. (laughs) During her stay, she was described as sickly and sad. Each day, she grew more pale and sicker. I'd be mad if someone described me staying at a hotel that way. You know, like, no, I just didn't put on my makeup, but thank you. She seemed like a real sad bitch and could have dealt with some sun. If you don't like my hair pile, get out. That's why she's in California. She wants to get some sun. So because she looks so sick, the hotel was like, do you want to see the hotel's physician? But she declined. (laughs) Which like, first off, in America, the idea of someone being like, would you like complimentary medical care? Like, I'm feeling great. But yeah, (laughs) why not? If it's free, it's free. Like, again, she said no. But she continually asked about the physician's brother, who his name was Dr. Anderson. So apparently he was a doctor as well. She had this story about him. She said that she and Dr. Anderson had accidentally gotten separated when they got off the train in Orange County and that Dr. Anderson had their baggage claim tickets. So that's why she didn't have her luggage and she needed to get in contact with him so that she could get her luggage. And so they were like, do you want to see the doctor? And she was like, no, but can I get his brother also doctor? And they were like, "Mm, no. Again, she continued to get more and more sick during her stay. At one point, she even slipped in her bath. We, we spoke earlier about how she had a maid that was helping her, but there was also a Mr. Gomer who she had several interactions with. And at one point she told him that she had an incurable stomach cancer, which maybe that's a metaphor. So, okay, she's running out of money too, which is the other part of this. It's a little bit strange is that she's in this extravagant hotel and she doesn't seem to have a lot of money. So Mr. Gomer asked who could send her money, which I think that's just fascinating. Like, can I call anyone for you to request money? (laughs) Yes, please. What a rich people thing. Sure. On my behalf, go for it. So she gives the name of G.L. Allen of Hamburg, Iowa. Tuck that away. And Iowa. And Iowa. And she said that he handled her finances. So Mr. Gomer sent him a telegram to ask for money. 
And he ended up sending her, I believe it was $25, which in today's money is over $700. So on November 28th, she left the hotel and she told the employees that she was going to identify her luggage since she didn't have her claim ticket. However, instead of doing that, she decided to go to downtown San Diego to buy a pistol at Chick's Gun Shop. That's a very different place to go. Yeah. So she told the owner, Mr. Chick, that it was a present for a friend. And from everything I saw, this was like an unsolicited bit of information that he like wasn't like, why are you buying a gun? She's just like, this is a present for a friend. Don't mind me. Don't mind me. This isn't weird. And so she bought a 44 caliber American Bulldog pistol and ammunition for the gun. Two of the shop employees had a conversation after she left about how they thought that she was going to hurt herself with that gun. And yet they let her walk away. I would be like, maybe we shouldn't sell her a gun. So the last time she was seen alive was on November 28th when she was standing on the veranda overlooking the ocean. That's why the camera is important. (laughs) Yes. So the hotel electrician, his name was David Cohn, is the one that found her body on the steps leading to the sea. And she had a bullet in her head. And she was also holding the gun in her right hand. He noted that her body seemed to have been there a while. He also said that her feet were pointing towards the ocean and there was blood on the right side of her body. She's holding the gun on the right side. So the woman's body was examined by Johnson and Company undertakers. And B.F. Mersman, who examined her remains, said that she had been shot in the right temple with a 44 caliber American Bulldog pistol. So it looked like suicide, right? She's holding the gun. However, there are a lot of things that say that it could have been murder. Yeah. And this, from when I was looking at things, is like a widespread debate online. There's so many like discussion boards and some have even said that they were, quote unquote, obsessed with this case. Yes. And we'll talk about the theories in just a little bit. So tuck that away. So remember, the woman had given a fake name when she checked in. And when she died, police could not find anything to help positively identify her. It was also noted that she was in the early stages of pregnancy. So was that the metaphor you were saying before? That was the metaphor I was talking about because the thing you're going to say next is going to explain why she might describe a baby in that way. It, It appears she did not want to have the child. He also said that she tried to abort the child with quote-unquote violent medication, and that she had previously given birth. So when they looked into her hotel room, they found a number of things, including envelopes addressed to herself as Lottie Anderson Bernard, Mrs. Lottie Bernard, Lottie Anderson Bernard, Detroit, and handkerchiefs with the name Louisa Anderson embroidered on them. Lots of names here. A telegram from the Bank of Hamburg, Iowa, with a $25 credit to Lottie A. Bernard. Mr. Allen said he had sent money because he thought he had went to high school with her husband. So he just like gets this random telegram. He's like, you want money? Here's money. (laughs) I think I know your husband. I think I met. Yeah, I went to high school. Could you imagine? You get a telegram from someone you might have gone to high school with asking for money. Kick rocks. (laughs) That would have been your telegram back. So a description of the woman was telegraphed to police agencies around the country. Newspapers referred to her as the beautiful stranger. Two weeks after the woman's death, she was buried without a headstone at Mount Cope Cemetery. There are many conflicting theories on who exactly was found dead at the Hotel Del Coronado. So there's two women primarily that could have been the woman. And the first is Lizzie Wiley. She was 24 years old. She had lived in Ontario previously, but she had then moved to Detroit with her mother after her father had passed. She worked as a bookbinder, both in Detroit and when she lived in Ontario. And her mother's name was Elizabeth Wiley, which like, let's bring back women naming their children after themselves like men do. I love it. So Lizzie left Detroit in October of 1892 with a married man named John Longerfield. And so the reason why people think that is because they were both working at a book bindery together. He was her boss, married with two children. He gets laid off because he's having an affair with her. She gets laid off then after that, looks for work. She can't find anything. So she's like, okay, I'm going to go leave and go find work. And her mom's like, at least if you stay here, you'll be able to eat. 
And she's like, nope, I'm leaving. I got to find a place. And then they find out that like, oh, John Longerfeld also left at that same time. So that's why she was so like motivated to move. That's what people thought. Right. And so per Lizzie's mother, the description of the clothing that was in Lottie's possession, which was the woman, right? So we can call her Lottie because it's the name she checked in with. But the clothing that was in Lottie's possession matched the clothing that Lizzie Wiley had taken with her when she left Detroit. Interesting. Elizabeth, Lizzie's mother, also said that she and Longfeld had eloped in November, which... I only saw that in a couple sources, so I wonder about that one, especially if he's already married because that's not legal. Right. Maybe record keeping wasn't that great there. Well, also, I mean, keep in mind, this was in an era where you could just leave. Yeah. Like, you just leave and go start a new life someplace else. Originally, when Lizzie left, her mother thought it was to find work because she had been laid off. But I've also seen sources that said that Lizzie was like, I'm going to go run an errand and like snuck out of the house with her trunk of clothes. And then her mom like looked in her room and was like, her shit's gone. What's up? And like freaked out. So after she had been gone for weeks, they saw a newspaper article about the suicide in California because that's what the newspaper, how the newspapers were reporting it. And Lizzie's sister, May, telegraphed the police in San Diego to ask for a description of the girl who died. And this is how they described her. She was five, six. She had a fair complexion, but she was sallow, which when I hear that, it makes me think of like sunken in cheeks. Kind of makes me think of like Tim Burton style, like the way that he accentuates. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So medium length black hair, two small moles in the left cheek. Tuck that in. Broad features, high cheekbones, brown eyes, about 150 pounds, good teeth. They thought she was about 26 in age. She had a plain gold ring on her third finger of her left hand. And a ring of pure gold with four pearls and a blue stone in the center. And she was wearing a black corset. Elizabeth, Lizzie's mom, when she was reading this, the second she read about the two moles on her face, she dropped the paper and cried out, my Lizzie, it's my Lizzie, what will become of me? Local officials believe that Lizzie took her own life because she was afraid of being caught after her and Longfield had committed crimes to procure money illegally. That feels like a really big jump. And I saw no reason for them to believe that other than the fact that she had some money on her and the jewelry she was wearing. So Longfield's wife is like, I'm sorry, what's happening now? Because she had been out of town. So she comes back to town and is like, my husband is not in town and everyone is saying he ran off with this other woman. So she sends him a telegram because he had told her where he was going because he was going to California, too. Uh And so she's like, "Uh, what's up, my guy? And he's like, no, 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 no. This is not Lizzie because Lizzie sent me a letter after the suicide and it couldn't have been her because in the letter that was postmarked in Toronto, she said she wasn't coming home because she had found a job at a book bindery where she had previously worked and she had made friends. So like, no, 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 no. She's fine. Like upon reading that, I'm like, you sound like a lying liar who lies just to me. That's a very convenient story. (laughs) Right. She went back from when she came, but Lizzie's family was from Ontario. So if she was going to move back to Ontario, in my opinion, it's strange that she would have done so without her mother. Fair, unless she was trying to get away from her mother. But I think in that thought, she would have gone further away. Yeah, yeah. She certainly wouldn't have gone back to a place they had lived. Because if you're trying to like shake your mom, you're not going to go to a place where she's familiar with, where she would be fine moving back to. You'd be like, Russia's nice this time of year. You just disappear. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So another prospect of who the woman was, was Kate Morgan. And this is probably the most popular theory. Yes. That when you look up the hotel, the name Kate Morgan is going to come up. She was 24 years old. She was working as a domestic for a man named L.A. Grant in Los Angeles. He said she didn't speak much about her past, but had said she was in an unhappy marriage. He was a gambler and she didn't know where her husband was. She left for San Diego and told Grant that she would be back in time to prepare Thanksgiving dinner. Grant called the police when she didn't return because it wasn't like her. Kate had left a trunk at Grant's home, which included a marriage certificate between Katie K. Farmer and Thomas E. Morgan, and it was dated from December 30th of 1885 from Hamburg, Iowa. Hmm. So remember, she did have something from Iowa, the woman, a tin box that had the name Louisa Anderson. So we hear the name Louisa Anderson again, too, there. Yeah. Authorities are the ones that concluded that the woman was indeed Kate Morgan. Yes. 
And so it's interesting, right? Because all of this happens in the late 1800s, but it gets kind of like stuck in people's crawl, if you will. There are several people who spend a lot of time researching because they want to know who this woman was. One of these people was Alan May, and he was a criminal defense attorney, and he spent three months researching who the woman was. Now, when he started his research, he didn't originally just automatically assume it was Kate Morgan. He was like, well, let me look at the prevalent theories. He looked through newspaper articles, and that's how he came to his conclusions-ish. So those who interacted with May during his research described his personality as though he had always just drank 20 cups of coffee. Like he was like constantly hyped. (laughs) And when asked why he was doing this, he says he talked about being drawn to the case and that he had seen her apparition before. And he said, perhaps the lady wanted a lawyer and she chose me to do it. And so he researched in archives all over the city, just like I had mentioned a moment ago. And he was satisfied with the conclusion that it was Kate Morgan. Can I give you another profession? I would love you to be a ghost lawyer. (gasps) Ghost lawyer. Oh, gosh. Chills. Yeah. I would love to be like a ghost, a guard, a ghost ed litem. Ghost guardian ed litem. Yep. There you go. You're welcome. Because if you know what a guardian ad litem is, it's a person who like represents a child generally in a court case, like a divorce, right? Where like the kid's not going to hire a lawyer, but they need somebody who's going to like look for their best interests. Ghost guardian ad litem. I bet you can contact Alan May and he'd be ready. Because he is dead. So he can be my first client. Exactly. Yes. And he would be like, ghost on ghosts. Coast to coast. (laughs) He's sitting there drinking his coffee after coffee as he describes how to get started as a ghost lawyer. Just chugging it. Right. So what he concluded is Kate and her husband were traveling across the country on a train. Kate and Tom got onto the train in Denver. They would run sort of like a con on the train. Kate would say that she was Tom's sister and then she would flirt with a random man. And then at the gambling table, they would be able to, quote unquote, fleece him. And May found this con in several newspapers. Interesting. Like, let's get on a train. Let's con all these men, steal their money. Well, Kate and Tom broke up when Kate became pregnant in autumn of 1892. Kate had wanted to keep the child, but Tom worried that the child would ruin their con. It's an interesting notion to think that he's saying he got all this from newspapers. As we read his research and like his conclusions, you can tell he gets kind of carried away in the story of it all. He does. Yeah. Well, there was some reports, though, that people had seen a woman that matched Kate's description on a train and they overheard some arguments. Mm hmm. So it could just be, I heard this, I heard this. But again, it's like a big game of telephone. So who could know what it really was? Yeah. So when the train got to Orange County, Kate got off, but Tom stayed on it to go to Los Angeles. She waited for her husband to arrive, but he never did. May believes that Kate purchased the gun to kill Tom and that Tom killed her before burning all of her identification. May thinks this because the large caliber bullet that was shot at close range would have shattered her skull, but her skull was not shattered and the bullet was lodged in her brain. So I know when you and I were talking about it a little bit ago, we're like, it only entered from one side and didn't come out the other. Yeah. Which is kind of weird when it's so close, right? Yeah. May also concludes that Kate had been shot on the beach and her body was dragged up to the stairs. He suggests this because the amount of rust on the gun when it was found. He thinks the gun had fallen into the ocean. That's interesting, too, like overnight. They didn't find her like a week later. I would imagine that if a gun or honestly, like any metal was adjacent to the beach, it would seem as though there was moisture on it just because of like where it is. Yeah. I don't necessarily know that I'd be like, well, Tom dropped it into the ocean and carried it back up and then put it in her hand, like all from rust. Now, May was a criminal defense attorney and said that there was not enough evidence to convict Tom, but there was enough circumstantial evidence to suggest that she was murdered by Tom. And in some of my research when I was looking into was it murder, was it not murder, I saw a few comments that said in some sort of autopsy report or the um, coroner's inquest that there is some speculation that the bullet in her head did not match the gun. Hmm. There's also other scholars that have criticized May's research, and they mostly say that he's making big inferences based on facts. I mean, it feels like it is, right? Like he he says like she bought a gun so that she could shoot Tom. 
Was he in her head? How would he know that? How would he know what happened between them? She told him. Right, right. She's not going to go tell someone. Unless, unless told him or the maid and the maid disappeared and told someone else. Ooh. And then that someone else was his great grandmother. So one of the people who doesn't really agree with May's research is Richard Carrico. And he's a historian and professor at San Diego State University. The first thing that he points out is that Kate lived in Los Angeles. So how would she have boarded a train in Denver? I thought that too when I read about Kate. That's bizarre. When Grant was describing Kate, he said that she was like an amazing employee. Like she was fantastic. So it's bizarre that there would be someone who could be like, she was living in L.A. And he's like, nope, she boarded the train in Denver. And this is honestly like the theory that I agree with the most. He suggests that Kate Morgan and Lizzie Wiley switched identities while they were on the train between Los Angeles and San Diego. Do you have chills? I love this theory. I love this theory. And he says it's because both Lizzie and Kate wanted to flee their lives. It would have been advantageous for both of them to switch. And so what we know about Lizzie is that she wanted to leave her home, right? Like she decided to do that. And from, you know, and we'll we'll get into a little bit more about Kate in a second, but it doesn't seem as though she's happy in her marriage and in her life. And being able to fully switch, say Kate Morgan living in Los Angeles, was actually Lizzie Wiley. And that if someone ever came looking for Kate Morgan and found her, they likely wouldn't be like, you're not our Kate Morgan, your name's wrong, right? Like it's not, nobody was gonna be like, let me see your social security card. So like, I don't think there would have been that level of scrutiny. So the idea of starting over with documentation of a, of a real person, I think that makes more sense. Yeah. I mean, it makes more sense now. I think it would definitely make more sense then too, because it was easier to not to be like, yeah, I vaguely look like this person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because of that, Carico believes that it was Lizzie who died, not Kate, but that she was living as Kate when she died. Right. So the thought of Kate, that's not Kate. Yes, not Kate, but it's the person who was living as Kate Morgan at that time. You know what this reminds me of? Parent swap, parent trap, not parent swap. <laughs> yes, that too. But have you seen the reports about Avril Lavigne not being Avril Lavigne? <gasps> yes, it does. Uh, yes. Yeah. Those reports are much more sinister that she like killed this girl to like take over her persona. I've seen that one, but I've also seen that fame came too fast and she was like, I want the chill lifestyle. And the other girl was like, I would love a busy lifestyle. Let's switch. And then Avril Lavigne supposedly died after that. And then the other woman continued being Avril Lavigne. It's very weird. Interesting. Every time I see the stories come up, I'm like, let me read it again. I mean, there's also Jean Benet being Katy Perry. And there is Amy Winehouse being Lady Gaga. Wrap your brain around all of these at once. I feel like Amy Winehouse and Lady Gaga don't in my brain. I think that a different nose is the difference between those two faces. You do know that Lady Gaga used to have dark hair, too. Uh-huh. I don't know if I can get on that one. But in yeah, interesting. All these swaps going on. I'm not saying whether I believe it or not. I'm just saying that a lot of people have said that one. There's also many a TikTok about it right now. But anywho, those are our swaps. But so, yeah. Let's get back to Kate. So Terry Garrido is the author of The Ghost of the Hotel Del Coronado, The True Story of Kate Morgan. And in his research, he found in 1961, there's a note from Mildred. And Mildred's Tom Morgan's daughter from his marriage to Jenny Dever. Kate had run away with Tom's stepbrother, Albert C. Allen. The letter also states that about a year after she ran away, Long Beach authorities reached out to him to claim the body. Tom said she had left him of her own volition and that he would not claim the body. Kate's parents lived in Hamburg. And then interestingly, Albert C. Allen is the brother of George L. Allen, the G.L. Allen from Hamburg, who wired her money. Ooh, right? Right? Lots of ties there. And with the Kate Morgan thing, too, just all the names matching, all like the weird things that she held on to. Yes. There is an article written by Richard Dua, and it's in the Ontario Genealogical Society's 2014 publication. A lot of the details that we have are from this article, including what was found in her hotel room and what happened in the days leading up to her death and the things that Amanda just talked about about Kate Morgan. 
But another thing that he had specifically done is he had done genealogical research to see did Lizzie Wiley exist anywhere after this death, which I feel like would have been a very reasonable thing to do. So I'm surprised that no one had done it before him. Yeah. Here's what he found. He found a Canadian marriage certificate between Lizzie Wiley of Detroit to Wallace Cook of Detroit, and they got married in Ontario. The names of the parents of the Lizzie Wiley match Lizzie's parents. May, Lizzie's sister, was one of the witnesses to the marriage. Lizzie Wiley was then Lizzie Cook. Lizzie Cook died at 42 from heart disease. And so Duell goes on to say May would have known if it wasn't her sister in Ontario. Yeah, fair. I mean, yeah, fair. But your sibling does a thing and you can either roll with it or not. Right. And like I could see if you had a sibling, especially a sister who was like, this is what's happening. I'm going to figure it out. They do this kind of thing. Like, I don't know if I was May. Maybe I still would be the witness. Maybe I still would do that. Right. Like I can't I could see I could see someone doing that. Being not being like, you're not my sister, right? Because like, you you know who your sister is. And obviously, when they would talk, they would know. But if that's what she needed, like they both decided to do this. And her sister's gone because she was the Kate Morgan. I just I believe it very thoroughly in my bones. Mm hmm. But in my, you know, in the movie playing in my head right now, this like elaborate switched thing. I feel that on her deathbed, it would have come out. And by the way, my sister wasn't my sister. Yeah. I mean, fair. But like, why at that point? That would just be murky. I don't because that's what happens. That's what happens, Lindsay. I mean, it is what happens. But let's talk about an immense amount of media that exists about this. There's books. There's a fictional series. There's a whole bunch. Yeah. So a couple of the books include Beautiful Stranger, The Ghost of Kate Morgan, and The Hotel Del Coronado, Dead Move, Kate Morgan and the Haunting Mystery of Coronado, and The Legend of Kate Morgan, The Search for the Ghost of the Hotel Del Coronado. Lots of ghosts, lots of Kate Morgan. There's also a fictional series called The Dell. Yeah. It seems like that series follows a fictional character going through to like help solve what happened. It sounds interesting. Yeah. I want to look it up. Okay, I have a lot of lingering questions and thoughts. And my first one is, who the hell is Louisa Anderson? Is it possible that there was a triple switch? Ooh, now you're getting crazy. This movie has not been done yet. Okay, so follow me here. Louisa Anderson, Kate Morgan, Lizzie Wiley. Lizzie Wiley and Kate Morgan switch identities, okay? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Then Lizzie as Kate switches identities with Louisa Anderson. So there is... Louisa Anderson, who is actually Lizzie. Mm-hmm. There is Louisa, who is Kate Morgan. Mm-hmm. And then there is Kate Morgan living as Lizzie. Yep, we need a map. Right? But that's all the names. That's all the names. <laughs> and that would explain it. Yeah, that would. That's just like a big, a big switch. I'm Alan Maying it. But who the hell is Louisa Anderson otherwise? <laughs> that seems like a big question. It would be one thing if the name showed up in one place. But the fact that the person who was in the hotel had things that said Louisa Anderson and in Kate Morgan's belongings, there was stuff that said Louisa Anderson. Uh Uh-huh. And how else would she find this name? Like both of those together. That's a weird coincidence. It's not like it's just like, oh, like one had Lindsay, one had Linda, like same name on embroidered even like... (laughs) Yeah, that takes that takes some doing. Yeah. And then also, if it was Kate Morgan as Kate Morgan or any version of Kate Morgan, why didn't they contact her family if Tom didn't want her remains? Exactly. Okay, so I'm just, you know, messing around and I'm looking up for Louisa Anderson. There is an Anna Louisa Anderson who lived from 1873 to 1892 in San Bernardino, California. Hmm. Hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And there's not much on her other than who she was married to. Well, I mean, like, it's not as though I think the name Louisa Anderson is by any means an uncommon name. It's more to me the exact match in these places. Right. Well, that and just this one would have been around the the same time frame. Yeah. Well, in the same year of death, specifically. Yeah. I do not like that. We solved the mystery. We solved it. Done. There's also a website called CoronadoMystery.com, and I need you to know that I read it and then immediately was like, I will not be engaging with this person because they literally make the argument at one point that 
Lottie, the person who entered the hotel, was graceful and beautiful Uh and that Kate was ugly. Therefore, it could not be her. And I was like, you're done. You're done. You're absolutely done. (laughs) Yeah. Also, if it is Kate Morgan and she ran away with Albert from Hamburg, her husband's stepbrother, fuck Albert if he left her. Yeah. So say in a world where she wasn't having an affair, but she just ran off. If Kate Morgan reached out to G.L. Allen for money, he wouldn't be saying like, oh, she went to high school with somebody I know. It would be his stepbrother. He would know who she was. Mm hmm. Yeah, all around. There's so many questions that I have. And when you look up things, too, it's like there isn't really any answers. There's no answers. So no real evidence of anything, realistically, right? That feels right. Well, okay, Amanda, what are your theories? What do you think? Is it Kate, Louisa, Lizzie, somebody else? All of them. (laughs) I don't know. There's so many reasons for it to be all of them, right? Like there's so many. You could go either way. It's That's what makes it kind of fun, I guess, to research because you're like, this is it. And then when you research that one, you're like, that's it. And then when you're like, but could it be Kate? And then you're like, yep, it's Kate. (laughs) No matter what you type in, you're going to find, quote unquote, evidence that it is that woman. Yeah, I think it's interesting because everyone seemed to be like, "Okay, Kate Morgan, call it a wrap. And I'm like, but is it? And also, it is good to note, too, that Alan May bought a tombstone for the grave. Yes. Saying Kate Morgan, but he wanted her to have a gravestone and to be named. Well, he wanted to be correct in one capacity. Yeah. But I want to say it says uh, Kate Morgan, also known as Lottie A. Bernard. Hmm. So he's like, she wanted to be Lottie. Here you go, Lottie. And I did read somewhere that there was a statue, but I don't see much on the statue. I didn't see anything about a statue, but I'm dying to know what other people think. Do you think it's a third person? Do you think they did a little switcheroo? Yeah. And have you been to that hotel? Did you feel anything? What do you think? Do you have photos? Did you stay in that room and stay up all night? Let us know. If you are loving the show, I know we keep saying this, but we would love some reviews. So if you go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify allows you to rate what you're listening now. And then also Facebook allows reviews. If you drop us a review and screenshot it and send it to us, we would love to send you a sticker as a thank you. Yeah. And also, if you're loving the show, feel free to take a look at our Patreon. We have a few different tiers, all with fun and fantastic different perks. And every once in a while, we throw in some surprises too. Plus, you get to be a part of the Bat Bonfire, which is our Patreon-only Facebook group. It's linked in our Instagram. It's linked in our website, but it's also in the show notes. Yes, please check it out. We'd love to have you in our Bat Bonfire. Yeah. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. It could be ghost. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at True Creeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 